God in unexpected places. This is the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Here's Jason Elam. Hey friends, this is Jason Elam. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Messy Spirituality Podcast. I love the conversations that we have here, and I hope you do too. But you know what I like even more than listening to the interviews on the podcast? I really love the conversations we're having on the Messy Conversations group over on Facebook. It's a safe, secure, private group where you can talk about your doubts and your struggles and faith and religion and all of life in an atmosphere free from judgment and full of love and respect. I would love for you to join the Messy Conversations group over on Facebook. You can find a link to it in the show notes for this episode, and I hope you'll join us there. Also, please check out our Patreon page. You'll also find a link to that in the show notes for this episode. It's patreon.com slash Jason Elam writes, W-R-I-T-E-S. That is where you can sign up to be our patron on Patreon. We could not do this podcast without the 25 supporters who have committed $1 a month or more to supporting the work of this podcast through Patreon. For each giving level, there are specific reward tiers. You can get everything from early access to each new episode of the podcast, all the way up to free copies of my forthcoming book, just for you. Uh, We are publishing articles just for our patrons on Patreon. We are also about to start releasing videos that will be specifically produced just for the patrons of this podcast on Patreon. So would you check that out? Patreon.com slash Jason Elam writes and make a pledge. It's just automatically drafted every month. You can cancel anytime and there's certainly no hard feelings about that, but I would love to have your support. It makes it possible for us to do what we're doing and we honestly could not do it without you. Thanks for listening. Enjoy this episode of the Messy Spirituality Podcast. My guest today is Kyle Butler. Kyle got his start in ministry when he was just 13 years old. He was ordained at the age of 21. Five years later, he was installed as the pastor of the church he grew up in. In 2008, Kyle received a revelation of grace that changed his life and ministry forever. As his understanding of grace increased, Kyle began to understand the unconditional love of God and humanity's oneness with God. Kyle is one of two co-hosts of Graceline every Monday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern on Facebook Live. He's featured on the Three Chord broadcasts on Facebook Live every Thursday evening at 7 p.m. Eastern and on Sunday mornings at uh, the Global Online Ministry Alliance on Facebook. Kyle's a contributor to the Too Many Podcasters podcast and a featured speaker at the upcoming Nomad 2020 virtual conference, which we'll talk more about later. I am so excited to welcome to the Messy Spirituality Podcast, the most encouraging person on Facebook, Kyle Butler. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jason. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here, and I'm super excited. Yeah, I am too. I've wanted to have this conversation for a long time. I've been following you on social media, and I'm always so encouraged by your posts. So I just want to start off by just saying thank you for being you. You bring so much light into so many people's lives, and I'm so grateful. Thank you. Thank you. You know, I, I feel the same way about you, Jason. I I absolutely love the passion and I saw this very early on, the passion that you have for everyone. It's very rare, <clears throat> especially, uh, you know, growing up in an urban environment where I grew up in. And I've, I've since ventured out of the environment, but I grew up in an urban environment and it was very rare to see other people of different ethnicities really standing up for what was considered the little guy. And uh, when I met you on Facebook and saw your posts and saw your heart and passion in that regard, it, it really blew me away. That's very kind of you to say. Um, before we started recording, we were talking about the current pandemic that the world is in, but specifically right now, we both live in the United States, and you particularly live in New Jersey, which is really, really a hotbed for this virus. How are you and your family holding up in all of this right now? You know what? Uh, it's been tough. It's, um, And I'm not a doom and gloomer, but it's really been tough because... You know, I've, I've, I've had two f- family members already pass away from the complications of COVID. We've uh, pretty much isolated ourselves in our home because I also have a autistic nephew here. My mother's here with us and, you know, she's pushing 70. So we're concerned about her and, and my nephew, of course, trying to keep them away from any possibility of coming down with it. 
being a former pastor, I, I, I know a lot of people here in this town and around the town. And you know, I've got a few calls from a few ex-members of the church we used to have, and some of their family members are dealing with it. And one, a dear sister who, who went to my church for a few years, she's in a coma now trying to come out of it. I have ex-co-workers who, who has lost their you know, moms and uncles and dads and things of that nature. And and then every day I'm hearing about someone in the town, a 40-year-old principal, a 24-year-old nephew of a friend of my mom's. It's been really, really tough because it seems like we're surrounded by death in a way. And, and I know that sounds very grim and it sounds very gloomy, but right now, I don't know if there's a better way to say it. So, Kyle, as somebody who's so surrounded by the virus and the impact of the virus, and you've personally, like you said, two family members, you mentioned before we started recording that you had a friend uh, elsewhere in the country who had passed away this week due to the COVID. Now, as someone who has had that impact personally, how do you feel when you see folks protesting and you know not wanting to wear masks and wanting to get the economy rolling and everybody get back to work. What goes through your mind when you see those images? Initially, when this thing kicked off, uh, you know, I didn't put much stock in it. And I don't know if everyone did. You know, I didn't. It, honestly, I, I thought, well, if they're saying it's like a flu, what's the big deal? Even though I know the flu itself can be pretty deadly. So for the first few weeks, it, it really didn't have much thought resonating within me. But as things started to escalate and the numbers started to climb and uh, it started to affect us, I remember when the kids got let out of school, uh, I think that was one of the first big milestones. And then, you know, it started just progressing worse and worse from there. So now as I look back and and I look forward and I look in my current day and I see the protests and the people complaining and, you know, some of the conspiracy theories that are being floated around, I, I said last week that I don't I don't really care. I don't give a rat's dropping, actually, where we think it came from, if we think it's this, if we think it's that. There's a tremendous amount of pain and suffering and hurt that this is having on people. And I I, I don't know why we're not really paying attention to that, even if it's not affecting us directly. And for me, I think that's really what our focus should be. You know, the, the I mean, one day the economy is going to bounce back. We've, go, we've gone through moments of tough economic situations in the past, 2007, 2008, and so, and so on. I mean, many, many times before that. And I understand the economic situation and the, everyone's desire to get back and get that moving. I mean, but that's going to do what it's going to do by itself one day. And, and we probably... Uh, from from some of the analysts that I've listened to over the past couple of months leading up to this, we were due for some type of downturn anyway. Maybe not this drastic, but some type of downturn was expected to come. So, you know, if our intention is just to get back on, get back the economy and get the money rolling again at the expense of the possibility that more people can die, more people can suffer, more people can be hurt, this thing can spread, get a lot worse. And I'm not a doom and gloomer. But if that possibility exists, I think we really need to take a look at what our motives are and, um, you know, really start to ask some questions internally and see where, where our hearts really is. That's very good advice. Uh, I don't want to belabor the point on COVID too long. I know that people are using podcasts as kind of an escape from what we're all surrounded by right now. You certainly more than I am. I'm down here in Florida, but you're in New Jersey. So so let's kind of get back to the meat of this podcast, this spiritual journeys. I would love to hear the story of your upbringing and your spiritual journey. Were you raised in an atmosphere of faith? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> My mom had an experience. I was maybe about four or five years old. I just remember her coming home one day yelling, I'm saved. I'm saved. I'm saved. And uh, it seems like when she got saved, I got saved because we were in church seemingly every day from that point on. <laughs> you got saved whether you wanted to or not. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, as far as my mom was concerned, me and my house, were going to serve the Lord. And that's just the way that was going down. And that's the way it went down. So, yeah, very early on, I was I was I was in this. Uh, but. 
for me, I wasn't just a, a kid. I wasn't just a spectator. I, just, I, I wasn't just someone who was dragged along with my mom. I, I was always very attentive and I was always very curious. So I remember very early on, anything about faith, and my mom would tell us these stories, Daniel and the lion's den, David and Goliath. My mom would tell us these stories and she'd always wrap them around faith. And I was so intrigued by faith I just wanted to know what this faith was capable of. And I remember one day I was in church. I was a little boy. I was maybe five or six years old at the time. And I had a Tonka truck that I loved. I loved this Tonka truck. And one day one of the wheels fell off. And I was in church one Sunday and they had this song they would sing. And it it, it, it went like this. It said, give it all to Jesus, your shattered dreams, your wounded hearts, and your broken toys. <laughs> and I remember my, I peeked up at that time. I perked up at that moment and said, broken toys? Oh, my God. And I, I started, I started uh, saying, God, can you fix my Tonka truck? You Because know? <laughs> <laughs> I was so impressed with faith and what faith is able to do. Well, as that story played out, he didn't fix the truck. The truck didn't get fixed. But my grandmother brought me a brand new one. And I didn't even ask for it. So to me, <laughs> you know, I was very, very into this very early on once that happened. So what did faith look like in your context? What type of uh, or maybe envi- uh, denominational environment did you grow up in? It was a Pentecostal holiness. Uh, early on as, as that little boy, faith to me was, man, anything is really possible. And on top of that, my mom was always very encouraging. She would always encourage us that we can do be anything. But as I got older in my church life and into my teenage years, which something very unique happened to us when I was about 12, we moved to Virginia, Northern Virginia, a city called Manassas, very close to Washington, D.C. And although I had grown up in this Pentecostal Holiness Church, which was all black, in Virginia, my mom found a non-denominational white church that we started attending. And this was, you know, the colors, white, black, how they're almost polar opposite, so to speak, as far as the scale of color. Well, as far as the scale of spirituality and the experience of the two, once again, it was polar opposite. We grew up in this very erratic, emotional, fanatical kind of style of worship. We danced, we shouted, we screamed, we ran, we fell out, we you know, we, our tongues were like rabbits. We'd, ah, you know, kind of thing. I went to this church in Virginia. They were laid back. They were wearing jeans and shorts and sandals. And there was no jumping. There was no running. There was any of the, none of this. And my first initial reaction was, as I had been trained, believe it or not, by 12, these people don't know God <laughs> because they're not doing anything like what we're used to doing. But boy, was I in for a really big shock because not only did I get to see a different part, a different type, a different expression of spirituality, I also got a better understanding of faith because there between 12 and 18, I started to understand slightly, not fully, but slightly that faith wasn't an emotional thing. It, it was it was something that you would build inside of your heart uh as, as far as a belief. So that's what faith kind of looked like for me early on. And then maybe about 2007 or so, I dove into the word of faith and then that took on a whole nother beast. And, you know, <laughs> that was something totally different. Talk to me about what your faith was in. Who, who was the God of your understanding growing up? What was God like? God was a beast. <laughs> God was God was a hard taskmaster. God was I saw God more as someone who would rather hurt you than help you, curse you than bless you, afflict you than heal you, uh, hate you than love you. Everything I did, and I, I I I tell it this way: the two biggest decisions I made in my life concerning God was. One, I was raised under the belief, if you don't get saved or give your life to Jesus by the time you're 13, if something happens to you after 13 and you die, you're going to hell. Old age of accountability, right? 
Yes. Yeah. The age of accountability. I was pretty smart. So at 13, on my 13th birthday, the first Sunday after my 13th birthday, I ran to the altar, you know, and, and said whatever they wanted me to say. I went home. I remember I was 13. I went home and, and I told my mom, 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 you know, because at this point we were still looking for a church. We were in Virginia and she hadn't found a church yet, but she would let us kids go on this. We call it the bus church, a, a, a big church in the area would send like buses in advance to pick up neighborhood kids and take them to church. So I came home and I was all excited. Mom, 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 I got saved. Uh, she was super excited. And but I remember Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, I was still being the same old Kyle. I wasn't, <laughs> you know, I didn't feel any different or it didn't seem like I was acting any different. I was still picking with my sisters and doing the mischievous things that 13 year old Kyle was doing. So by that next Sunday, I ran back to the altar and did it again. And then I did it again and again. And finally, one Sunday, one of the deacons pulled me aside and said, young man, you don't have to keep coming down here. You're okay. And I said, but I don't feel okay. <laughs> I, was, I was still afraid because I didn't want to, I wanted to make sure that if something happened, I didn't go to hell. That was my first major decision towards God. It was a fear-based decision. It, it was no love there at all. And then second, I was, secondly, the second major decision was I was raised also in an environment where if you don't do what God wants you to do, oh, He'll force you. He'll make you. He'll put calamities on you. He'll send you down a Jonah's path. He'll, you know, afflict you. He'll do whatever he has to do to make you do what he wants you to do. And I grew up with that understanding as well. So as I started to get a sense that there was a call in my life for ministry, and this was the pathway that I believed at the time I had no choice but to take. At 20 years old, or 19 actually, I remember saying, okay, God, I'm going to give you my all because I don't want you to force me to do it. So this next great decision I made towards God was another fear-based decision. So most of my youth, most of my adult life, the young adult life, really up until about 2010 or so, I saw God more as a tyrant than a father. Um, more as a angry judge than a redeemer, more as a an enforcer, more so than a lover. How did that change for you? In your bio, you mentioned a revelation of grace that changed uh, your your faith and your ministry. How did that come to you? I grew up in again in this environment. I knew nothing about grace. It was two thousand and eight. I heard from within, so loud, so clear. Son, you have no idea how big my grace is. And I remember saying, show me. Now, that was a pretty unique moment for me because I was also trained and indoctrinated with the belief that when God talks, you shut up. You don't say anything. You just listen. <laughs> you just listen and do. That's all. <laughs> right. What he's got to say is more important than what you've got to say. Right? <laughs> exactly. I've heard that one, too. Right. I wasn't used to having this dialogue so much. Right. So when he said this, my instinctively, Jason, everything inside of me, I knew exactly what I was hearing, but I didn't know what it meant. So I before I caught myself, which I'm glad I didn't catch myself, I yelled out, show me. Well, that's exactly what began to happen uh, from that moment, piece by piece, layer by layer. Spirit of truth within me began to show me things that were totally against everything that had been taught, everything I believed, everything I was doing, things that was removing the work performance mindset, things that was removing the fear, things that was removing the dread of ministry, of life, of being connected to this God. This, this, this revelation of grace, how this was all a gift. This was all from a heart of a lover. This was all from a place of, this is for you. I just want you to have it. I just want you to enjoy it. I just want you to embrace it. You've got nothing to fear. You've got nothing to worry. When this began to grow inside of me, it revolutionized everything I thought I understood. And I tell you what, even though there were some moments where I felt so afraid, I was so afraid because... I thought 
I'm going too far. I mean, how do you not do all of the things you've always done? But I tell you what, the peace that I was gaining through every moment of discovery, I realized this peace is so great, so good. I'm going to go the peace route. I'm going to hold on to this peace journey and what I'm discovering now because I don't want to go back to that other way. I was miserable. I never really had true peace. Everything was about, am I doing enough? Am I giving enough? Am I serving enough? Am I, am I pleasing enough? And every time those questions were asked to me, it was always no. You mentioned God being a taskmaster, or at least that was your mindset growing up. Who do you think God is now? <laughs> not a taskmaster, that's for sure. <laughs> not a taskmaster, not angry, not vengeful, not any of those, what I now would word, despicable characteristics and attributes that I had learned growing up. God, when God revealed Father, when I saw God as Father first, that was one of the first transformational things that happened to me. I saw God as Father. Now, I had a very strained relationship with my father, even though he wasn't my natural father, but he raised me. And my natural father, I never knew. So I had a very strained relationship with this father character. But when, when, when I begin to see God as father and I begin to hear the word son proceed from him in my hearing, I begin to hear this word son, son, son. I begin to see myself as this loved being that was, that was being loved by love itself. Well, I can't see God any other way today than being nothing but pure love, nothing but pure love. It's, it's all that God is to me. It's all I understand God to be. It's all that I can imagine God being, God doing. It's just this incredible, incredible, insane love. And that's far, far different than what I understood. I mean, I knew the scriptures. I knew the verses for God so loved the world. God is love. I knew those things, but they were just in my hearing. It, it was never from an experiential pers perspective or position. I never experienced that type of love. But today, I experienced nothing but that kind of love. In the Pentecostal circles that I kind of bounced around growing up, there was a lot of legalism rooted in Scripture. Was that the case in your background as well? <laughs> so yeah. when you started to get an understanding of grace, uh, in my mind, there were all these stories from the Old Testament and some from the New. I mean, Ananias and Sapphira is in yeah. the Bible too, right, in the New <laughs> <Yeah>. Testament. <laughs> um, so we've got these stories that immediately pop up in our mind to disprove the doctrine of grace or the goodness of God, or, I mean, we talked a lot about unconditional love growing up, but we didn't believe it at all. Uh, was that your experience as well? And if so, how does the Bible fit into your faith today? I didn't really grow up hearing much about unconditional love. Most of what we preached then, and and even though I, I didn't consider myself a hard preacher, I, I didn't preach on sin. I didn't preach on these things that I hated hearing about so much growing up. I, you know, I would try to keep the messages as encouraging and light and faith-filled as I could, although it was still all performance-driven. And that's the environment I grew up in. Everything was based on performance, how much you prayed, how much you fasted, how much you give, how much you were living a, quote, holy life. I grew up in a Pentecostal holiness church, and we meant that word holiness. I mean, we would end every service with holiness without shall no man see the Lord. So that was a huge, huge part of everything that I understood. And when I look at the Bible today, I see it vastly differently than I did, of course, all those earlier years. Number one, I knew nothing about context, nothing. That word was foreign to me. I didn't know anything about context. I didn't know anything about audience and audience relevance. I didn't know anything about time. I, I, all I was taught was this Bible, this book from cover to cover, 
It's the word of God. Every single word of it applies to you and you do everything it says they're in. If you want to live, if you want to succeed, if you want to grow, if you want God to bless you, this is the way it's done. And you do what this Bible says. That's what I was taught. But as I started growing in the revelation of grace first and then the revelation of unconditional love, well, I started taking another look at some of these stories and I couldn't find grace or unconditional love in them. Now, there's a there's a you know there's people who would tell you you gotta dig deep and you gotta you know find God somewhere in Noah's Ark and you gotta find God in Sodom Gomorrah you gotta find God in these stories and somewhere somehow you'll see Jesus in them. Well, I tried, I couldn't, and I said you know what that's too much work for me. <laughs> so so what I'm gonna do, I'm just gonna bypass all that stuff. <laughs> I'm gonna leave it to the imagination of people who didn't really have a clear understanding of who God's who God was. I'm going to leave it up to the possibility that the translators got it wrong. I'm going to leave it up to the possibility that even the hearers were, were you know, they got it wrong because they're still filtering it through their understanding, their cultural experiences and things of that nature. And to me, when I'm going to scripture to try to use it in any way I'm trying to use scripture today to point people inward to the truth that's inside of them. So to me, the Bible should only be a tool that we use to point people inward by using some of its encouraging words, perhaps that Jesus said, or perhaps some of the things Paul talked about, like in Ephesians chapter one, when he's talking about from the beginning of world, the world, from the beginning of all things, from the foundation, from before anything was formed, made or established, we were with God. We were accepted. We were loved. We were there. It, we've always been part of, you know, so to me, that's what I use the Bible for today, just to point out things like that. And I tell people, if you don't see God in it or you don't see love in it, if you don't see Jesus in it, what do you need it for? And that's great advice. It's a great question to ask ourselves. Um, I've heard you use this phrase, humanity's oneness with God, and I would love to understand that better. What do you mean when you talk about humanity's oneness with God? When I started yielding myself to what grace is, I understood grace early on to be the person of Jesus. This was my first understanding of grace. Grace is the person of Jesus. Well, that's when I still had a, a penal substitutionary atonement mindset. I still believe that God poured all his wrath upon Jesus and beat the living daylights out of him to you know, be able to be okay with us. I've since moved on from that belief system. Uh, but in those early years, as grace began to become a bigger part of me and helped me find a loving, more gentler God, and then Unconditional love came shortly after the revelation of grace came in, and those two together put their arms around me and walked me down the road a good ways. And, and, and as we got closer to this next thing, I started to understand that what grace and unconditional love was showing me together was humanity's oneness with God. Our, our oneness with create with, with our creator, where our, our oneness with where we came from. And then I began to see how Jesus, even though I think the, his words are incredibly edited, you see there, Jesus is talking about this oneness, especially in John 17. He's talking about it before the cross, before he did anything on the cross, before anything happened, before, you know, uh, I know a lot of people believe that the cross had to happen for God to be okay with humanity and the cross did this for us and the cross did that for us. And I'm a little, you know, I'm, I'm a little different position on the cross, which, you know, is my position. It's okay. Because what, what, what really gets me is Jesus was proclaiming kingdom within God, within humanity's oneness before the cross. And then I learned that to a first century Jewish person, heaven and earth we're speaking about their bodies. So you look at when the, the famous Lord's Prayer, our Father, which art in heaven, they understood this, I believe, to be Jesus saying, our Father within you. 
And I'm like, whoa, wait a minute, what? <laughs> like, well, in, within? It's in, it's within us? Okay, wow. <laughs> you know, and, <clears throat> you know, that kingdom come, thy will be done, as he would re- as he would point to the kingdom is not coming by observation. You're not going to see it falling out the sky or you're not going to see something spectacular happening like you think you will, but it's inside of you. And I, I started seeing how we've always been one with father and our awareness. However, we were totally unaware because we had been darkened in our understanding. We'd taken on a lower perception of belief, a, a lower realm of thinking we, we, we thought we were dirty, wretched sinners. We thought we were separated from God. We thought we were hated. We thought we, we had to work our way back to. And that mindset that, that just swelled and grew in humanity, propelled by religious beliefs, propelled by a lot of different terrible factors, really tried to darken the truth of what I see of our, of our oneness with Father, and how it's always been. And I see now more and more this resurgence, this 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 awakening, so to speak, is, is really growing amongst people. And we're realizing we're not any of those things religion said we are, but we're one with, with God, source, creator, universe, you know, a lot of different ways we say it, Christ consciousness. We're one with that. We've always been one with that. And that's and we'll always be one with that. So like you, I was raised with the mindset that God had to torture Jesus on the cross. He was basically taking out how pissed off he was with me, but doing it to Jesus so he didn't have to do it to me. Um, when, when the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement started to fade, I had trouble grasping, okay, what was the cross about? The cross event, what was actually taking place there? Kyle, what's your understanding today of what happened at the cross? Because I don't believe God needed anything for God to be who God has always been to us. Because if to me, the way I see it today, and this is where I am. Everyone may not be, and I'm not saying I'm right and anyone's wrong, but this is just how I see it. This is what gives me peace today as I look at the cross. I can't see anything in there, even a as as it's said by those who have moved away from penal substitutionary atonement. You know, the the, the, the there's a there's a teaching around that that says that you know Jesus was displaying the love of the Father. Jesus, you know, allowed himself to be killed to show the world how much God loves him. And, 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 and there very well could be an aspect to that, that that is what part of the agenda was. For, for me, I, I don't see it that way anymore. I, I just see it as Jesus being this person who became fully aware of who he was and who he is. And he passionately came to his own I believe somewhere between those missing years of 12 to 18, he or 12 to <clears throat> 30, those 18 years, he ventured out from Jerusalem. He ventured out from the law. He ventured out from his early religious upbringing. I think he discovered within himself that what he was learning in the Torah, in the Judaic law, in that system, I think he realized that this is not it. This is not big enough. This is not broad enough. This is not strong enough. And I think he ventured out and discovered some other things that helped him see his oneness with God. And he dove himself into this truth and became so aware of his oneness, so aware of love, so aware of his Christ consciousness, so to speak, that he embraced this message, he embraced his truth, he embraced his love as a love being like Father. And then he went back with this excitement, this this exuberance, this joy, I'm going to help my people, I'm going to help them see it, I'm going to help them be free. And he went back and began to display this tremendous, passionate, God-like love to his people and begin to talk to them. He understood, I, I got to do it in parable form because they're not quite ready for it. So, you know, I'm going to say some things publicly in, par- in parable and parabolic form and, and some allegories here. And in privately, I'm going to reveal it even deeper to the people that are close to me. 
because I believe that's what he was trying to do. And then, of course, as religion does, as fear does, as control does, as people in power, the the religious rulers of his day, see the possibility that this guy's going to wreck our system. He's going to mess with our money. He's going to destroy our power structure with what he's saying. If people get this message and really begin to gravitate towards it, we're in trouble. And I believe, like every other martyr, Martin Luther King, um, you know, the, the list goes on, but every other martyr, people said, we got to take this guy out. We got to take him out. He's messing things up. And I believe they took him out. And although he said things, I'm, I'm, I laid out my life. I think he understood, much like most people in this category have understood it. So that's kind of how I see the cross. I see it as something that um, God didn't need to happen to be or to do anything for humanity. It was something that happened because of a message and the messenger who was carrying the message. And he was just willing to do that if it was necessary. I've come to believe that the fruit of good theology, of healthy faith, is the way you love people. Yeah. And you love people as well as anybody I know. Has that always been the case for you or has that changed as your as your faith has evolved? (laughs) I'm laughing because, uh, (laughs) yeah, I was a young Pharisee starting off. You got to remember, I'm 20 years old here. I'm 21 years old. I'm being ordained. I'm young. I'm brash. You know, I'm, I'm, I have this unrealistic cockiness, so to speak. Uh, I was raised in church, or my mentor was a 60-plus-year-old pastor who had been the founder of the church and been there for, you know, 30-plus years. Uh, we grew up with great respect and fear for this man. He was, to us, the closest thing that God will probably ever see. And he was hard. Um, So this young, impressionable, 20-year-old person that's just getting ordained, I believed that this was the way. And at 20-something years old, I was morphing into this Pharisee, this hard, judgmental, exclusionist, I was, I was, I thought, because of what I saw, I thought the way you get people to do right is you reject them. My family members, my sisters particularly, who grew up like I did, but wasn't coming along spiritually fast enough for me. I started to reject them. I started to to treat them coldly. I started to look upon them with disdain and disgust, people who weren't living up to the spiritual standards that I thought they should be, what I thought the Word said, what I thought God was requiring of them. And I was this judgmental young Pharisee. I would walk down the streets of my town here, again, an urban city, an urban environment full of people that would be viewed upon as worthless in some ways people that are strung out on drugs, prostitutes, alcoholics. There's a liquor store in almost every corner in this town. And it's easy to walk down streets and drive down different streets and just look upon people just out there, seemingly lost and hopeless. And I would look upon them with great disdain and great disgust. No love, no compassion, no consideration, nothing. You were them. You wasn't one of us. And I I lived that way for a good portion of my young minister life in my early pastor years. And it wasn't until the revelation of grace and unconditional love began to show me how loved, valued, and accepted I am that I finally began to see people as beloved people just like I am. I can walk down the street today, Jason, and it's not even, this is not anywhere close to me trying to pat myself on the back, but I can walk down the street today and I can look at people, the same type of people that I once objectified and and segregated from my mind and, and just vilified as being worthless, no good people, pawns of the devil. I can look at them today and, and say, as I often do, 
you are highly beloved and accepted by Father just like I am. And to me, that has been one of the greatest transformations in my life. Not how much I had learned how to pray, not how much scripture I knew, not how anointed I thought I was. When I touched people or blow on people, they would fall out. None of that means anything, meant anything, would ever mean anything like it does knowing this great love and being able to display it upon people, give people some hope, help people see them va- their value, and to know that they, they're not what they think they are. They're, they're more than that. And love loves them, and love accepts them, and love is not asking them to do anything but to understand their love, and they're accepted, and out of that, as they see their value, out of that, as they feel their self-worth as, a, as, as one highly beloved, one with God, just like God, as they see that they can then rise out of whatever the ailments are that's around them. That's been one of the greatest transformations that has happened to me. It's the thing I cherish the most. And it's literally all I want to do is help people understand how loved and accepted they are. Oh, you're very good at that, and I see you doing it every day. Let me ask you this. Uh, a lot of times when we start to understand the grace and unconditional love of God, we get pushback from people that we've always loved and respected in ministry. Did you go through a difficult season where you, you got pushback from your mentors? Uh, I, I had the one mentor who, you know, by the time I started seeing this message, he was coming on with dementia. So the talks we would have, we, we used to talk all the time, long talks. The talks we would have, we weren't able to have anymore. So I really wasn't able to kind of tell him what I was learning and discovering because, you know, he, he wouldn't recognize me and uh, he couldn't call him and things of that nature. But I have other people who were kind of like mentors. I have my mom who, now my mom is as is, is, is wonderful as she is. My mom's probably one of the most loving people I ever met in my life. Now, if I wasn't so religious, religiously minded, I would have probably caught this from her a long time ago. I've never seen my mom not love someone. I've never seen my mom not speak lovingly of someone. I remember we would debate slash argue when she would say to me, Kyle, you shouldn't say that about them. And I would say, Mom, you're blind. I'm so tired of you being so blinded by this love you think you have. You need to tell people the truth. If they're no good, you need to tell them they're no good. <laughs> I remember having those conversations with her. But she she would hold true to what she believed about people and, and just tremendous love. But Grace, well, that was a different category because she too grew up in that performance-based system. Not as not as tough as some of the other ones, but still, she you know she had a lot of performance about her, like I did. So it, it was it was a little bit of a challenge there at times to to really um, you know have certain conversations with with my mom, who is a mentor to me. And then there's other uh, pastors and friends who I we we kind of grew up together and, and pastored together and did a lot of work together and you know with, between our, our churches and you know a lot of those have kind of walked away, especially as the grace message started becoming a bigger part of my message. And by the time I made it to the unconditional love message, then yeah, they were pretty much all gone by that point. <laughs> but it's okay because I found a whole new community, you and Keith and and Carl and, and, and so many others, just like you guys and Derek. I found this whole other community of people who understood grace and love and humanity's importance. And um, so maybe the people that, that, I, that I lost, so to speak, and decided not to fellowship with me that way, maybe it, it's, it was good because it opened up the door for me to have more room for the beautiful relationships and friendships I'm building now. Yeah, I think that social media is it's just an incredible gift to folks like us who find ourselves on the outside of the traditions that we have been a part of most of our lives. 
And we've been given the gift of each other to encourage and to walk together. I mean, this would be a very lonely road, Kyle, if it wasn't for you and Keith and Derek and others others like you. But Facebook, as encouraging as you and, and many others are, <laughs> Facebook is a zoo. I mean, it's just yeah. an absolute circus sometimes. And it's like you can't post good morning yeah. without somebody arguing with you about whether it's going to be a good morning or not. You know, um, yeah. what made you decide that social media was a ministry outlet that you needed to spend so much time on? When I first came to social media, it was 2009, and I thought it was nothing more than a kiddie place, a you know, college kid's place to hang out. But I've always been a pretty encouraging pe- a person, rather. I always loved encouraging people, even though I didn't have the, the necessary tools to encourage people with. Again, I was using still that older religious mindset that if you're, if you're with us, I've got an encouraging message for you. If you're not with us, then... I really don't want to even talk to you. So for the people that was with me, my friends and family, coworkers, people that I was around all the time and kind of knew my heart and knew where I was at, I I had this daily text message uh, thing that I would do. I would send them this encouraging, motivational text. So 2009, I remember I hear from within, hey, you should start putting this on Facebook. I thought, why? Facebook, I mean, you know, I don't even use Facebook. So I listened and I went ahead and did it and signed up for Facebook. And I just started putting out my daily little inspirational things. And, um, <clears throat> you know, they were just doing that. And then as a message started to grow to faith and then grace, it started just going down the road from there. I spent a lot of years on social media, kind of not really noticed or known or seen or anything. And then one day, about two years ago, something weird happened. I started getting all these friend requests out of nowhere. I, I was, I'd wake up and look at my phone and I'd have 70 or 80 new friend requests. I'm thinking, what in the world is going on here? I, I, I attributed to pops possibly that I was starting to do videos. I was starting to, you know, do some encouraging, inspiring videos. So I thought, okay, that maybe that's what it is. People are starting to see the videos and they like the message. And um, then from there, it kind of just took off. So as that as the platform started to grow, I realized that I've, I've got an opportunity here. Now, I don't consider myself to have followers. People say sometimes when they're trying to be disagreeable or, or you know, downright nasty, they say, uh, you know, your followers, your followers, they'll just, you know, you're, you're deceiving all of your followers. And I try to say, well, listen, I don't really think I have any followers. I, I think I just say things that resonates with some people and they like it. And if it doesn't resonate, that's okay too. And I thought that since there's this, this, this platform is here and, you know, there's, there's, you know, some people that enjoy what I'm saying, I'm going to take advantage of it. And I'm not saying that everything, every comment I get, every interaction is always making me feel good because it doesn't. And there are times I want to lash out and say, you know what? Why don't you get the beep out of here? Just leave me the beep alone. <laughs> you know, there's sometimes I really want to do that because you know, just sometimes you get very aggravated. But I made up in my mind that I'm going to be a place where, as much as I can, I'm going to let love dominate. And when I started doing that, it became easier to deal with the negativity that was coming and what what happened from time to time. And then I, I, I realized, wait a minute, Kyle, you've got to understand something. Well, I had many of these moments, but I, where, I, where I am today, I realized more and more that people believe what they believe because it gives them peace. Now, it, it's, a, it's a peace that probably is going to fleet out in a little while, depending upon what it is that you believe. But it gives them peace. They're, as as horrible as this this may sound, there's some people who have peace in believing that there's a place of eternal conscious torment that lies ahead of the people they hate. That gives them peace. As weird as that sounds, as bad as that sounds, it gives them peace. And there's people like you and I who 
It gives us no peace to believe that. And we got we we have great peace believing that that place does not exist that way and that love could never do that. So as long as someone is in their place of belief, that's their peace. And when they're ready to move on after that or beyond that, it's no longer giving them peace. Then they'll they'll be ready to perhaps consider some of the things that people like you and I are saying. So I, I want to give people their proper respect where you are. If you're there and that gives you peace and you say something disagreeable to me, I'm just going to, not not in a condescending way, but I'm just going to say thank you for your thoughts because they're your thoughts. They're not mine. And I thank you for taking the time to let me know this is what you think. Not mine, but yours. So thank you for your thoughts. That's a great way to handle it. Yeah. And it just, it, it makes it easier for me. And that's just a decision that I made. Very smart. What is your current relationship to the church? Do you still actively attend worship services or have you kind of shifted to online church or, or are you doing something different altogether? <laughs> yeah, something different altogether. I have no animosity, no hatred, no hurt, no anger towards the church. I mean, sometimes people say, you you must have been hurt in the church. That's why you say these things. No, actually, I wasn't. I mean, I was the pastor for most of the, my adult church life. So if anybody was hurting folks, it was me. <laughs> you know, I was at the I was at the top of the heap there. So I'm not, I don't have any church hurt. I don't feel like, you know, I went to church and got abused and this, that, and the other. So I don't have any church hurt. I, I have no animosity towards the church. Um. And the things that I say are not to attack the church or anyone. Hopefully, I'm just stimulating thought. Now, the way I view church today is vastly different than I used to. Um, For one, I don't see a need for anyone to be a lifetime member of a church. That's me. I don't see what the point to that is. I don't think that the current church structure, the way it's structured and set up and has been running for hundreds of years is really geared towards helping people grow and understand their oneness with father. I don't believe that's the agenda, the purpose, or the intent of a large percentage of churches that operate today. I think that for purposes of repeat business, church itself is designed to just keep you feeling less than who you really are so that you keep coming back for more because you need it. You've got to have this. You're not good enough yet. You'll never really be good enough. You need to be taught. You need to be trained. You need to be developed. Although I'm not really going to give you a lot of training development type of stuff. I may really give you a lot of condemnation stuff. Maybe I'll sprinkle it in with a little bit of grace. Maybe I'll sprinkle it in with a little bit of love. So my, my ideal church structure would be come, grow, and go. We do that in every other aspect of life. We go to school, we come, we grow, we go. We do that on our jobs. We come, we grow, we go. Except for church. For some reason, there's this belief system that we have to be in church all of our lives and make all these sacrifices and, you know, forsake our children when it's time for them to be in sports and other extracurricular activities. And we feel like God is holding this obligation over us that we've got to do it. And I don't don't see any of that anymore. So I tell people, if you want to go, go. If you feel like this is a community for you, that's fine. And if you don't, then don't. You don't have to. I appreciate what's happening online, that there's so many wonderful voices now that's online. People can get up on Sundays or Saturdays or Tuesday nights or whenever and and just hear something that's going to encourage them and help them grow. And they never have to walk into a building if they don't want to. And I most certainly believe you don't have to. But if I ever do something else again in an organized setting, which I don't think I will, but if I do, it will look nothing like church has ever looked to me before. It'll be an environment where we can come sit around tables or chairs or couches, have some, some you know, tables of snacks and drinks and whatever, and just sit and commune together. 
no I, no you, no pastor, no this, no worship, no, none of that. Just let's just come and let's share. I want to hear what you're seeing, what you're thinking, what you're, what you're feeling. You know, perhaps you want to hear a little bit of mine. And we just sit and have this, this dialogue together and, and what I call real fellowship together. And then that's it. And I probably wouldn't do that more than twice a month. I love that so much. I'm most certainly not going to do something every Sunday. That's definitely not happen. <laughs> I don't even have the I I don't even have the the the, the will to go to church every Sunday. So <laughs> that's that's what I would do if, if I ever did something organized again. Well, I certainly love the picture that you're painting right there. That that just sounds beautiful to me. Our time is is come and gone, but I'm so grateful for your time today, and I'm grateful for you and and the light that you shine. And I just I just feel the love of God every time I see a post that you make or a video that you've created, or get a chance to talk to you. What are you working on now? What's coming up for you, Kyle? I hope to to start a, a new podcast soon uh, called Thinking Is Good. It's a tagline that that I heard inside of me one day and I started using it and called a little fire. Uh, so I, I, I'm hoping to start that soon. People have always asked me to, am I writing a book? I should write a book. And I hear that a lot. I mean, I don't know. There's moments where I feel motivated and inspired to do so. And then there's other moments where I don't really feel it. So I, I don't know how that's going to go. And I think another reason too is, it seems like the message is always growing. <laughs> So what do I write about? <laughs> uh, so I don't know. Other than the, the podcast that I have on the hopper, there's um, we have the, the Nomad Conference coming up in June, which I'm super excited about. I get a chance to share probably some of the stuff I'm talking about here uh, with, with a group of people that I, I think just want to hear that they're okay where they are. You know, you know, we have our Graceline show on Monday nights that I enjoy doing with Lynn Bennett. And um, and, and then I don't I don't know too much more than that right now. And I'm OK with that. I, I, I saw I read this. Well, not read this. I wrote this the other day and uh, I probably posted over the next few days somewhere. that I feel so much better now in life, knowing that God doesn't have an assignment on my life. Because that word assignment always felt like he had a contract over me. Like he was just waiting to take me out, looking for a hitman. <laughs> you know. So knowing that and, and being in this place, it, it's 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 brought me great peace. I believe if if there's a will of God, so to speak, for our lives, I think it's a lot different than what I was trained to believe. The will of God is that you pastor, the will of God is that you preach, the will of God is that you sing, the will of God is that you this. I think for me, if I were to describe it, I would say the will of God is for every single human being is to come to a place to understand that they're loved by love and they're accepted. And then just go live life. Just go discover. Just go explore all of the wonderful things that are in this earth that Father put here for us to enjoy. Just go do life and go live. Go be free. To me, that's the will of God for us all. And uh, I know you, Jason, you've gone through quite a transformation and metamorphosis yourself from, you know, a, a, a pastoral background. And, and you know, you, I know it was tough to walk away from all of that. But I saw a picture of you once with you and your family walking on the beach of Florida, down there in Florida, walking on the beach. And when I saw that picture, I thought, yeah, he's got it. He's got it. He's found it. Yeah. It's a whole new world, man. <laughs> Peace that passes understanding was just a theory until until I found yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brother, I love you so much. I'm so grateful for you and, I love you and too. what you're doing in the world. Tell folks how they can find you online. Facebook is uh, my, my main source. But if you go to my website, kylelbutler.com. KyleLButler.com. In that website, there's some content there, not a whole lot. I got to really put some more stuff out there. But what you will find are the links to all of my social media pages, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and you can go follow me there. Uh, again, I do most of my stuff on Facebook. I, I just really enjoy that platform. 
occasionally I'll put some new stuff on YouTube or, you know, picture or two on Instagram. But my, my everyday post, if I do a post every day, sometimes twice a day here lately, because I've had all this time on my hand, it's been almost sometimes three times a day, which is outside of my character a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we all found ourselves with some extra time on our hands. Yeah, didn't we? yeah indeed. <laughs> Well, brother, I'm so grateful. We're going to, listeners, we're going to send uh, the, we're going to post the link to Kyle's website, to his social media in the show notes for this episode. We're also going to post a link where you can register for Nomad 2020. It is a virtual conference for spiritual nomads. It's June 5th through 7th, but those dates aren't vitally important because if you have other plans, you can watch these sessions for up to a month after the conference takes place. So don't miss the opportunity to register for that conference. Kyle will be a part of it. I'll be a part of it. So many of our friends that you've heard on this podcast will be a part of it, and we can't wait. We're really excited. We'll hope you'll be a part of it as well. Kyle, thanks so much, brother. I love you. Thanks, Jason. I love you too. You've been listening to the Messy Spirituality Podcast. You can find us on Facebook and visit us online at MessySpirituality.org. You can help spread the word about the podcast by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes and sharing links to each episode on your social media. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode.